It's a little different when you have plants in the ground, right? And they take five years to really come to full production. But uh, yeah, you have insurance and you have that holdback. But uh, your first first exit strategy, so to speak, is just cash flow. Your second one is refinance. Because you know, obviously a vineyard that hasn't produced yet is worth a whole lot less from a commercial uh, perspective than a vineyard that's producing you know, thousands of tons of fruit at you know a thousand a thousand dollars a ton consistently. That that is suddenly worth a whole lot more so you can actually go refinance that pull some of that capital out snowball it do another block go do something else with it distribute it etc what's going on guys this is the passive wealth strategy show thank you for tuning in today our guest is mason moreland today we're talking about the wine business specifically the small part of the wine business kind of independent growers and a business that mason and his family have started as relatively new wine growers who are getting into the business. We talk about how they're doing it, how they're building it up, how they can be competitive, growing grapes and making wine in Texas. Very interesting. We also talk about the passive investing angle of the wine business, where that opportunity kind of is now and where it's gonna be in the future as it gets more and more sophisticated and there's more and more passive investment opportunities in that business. I like wine. I don't know much about wine. So I learned quite a few things today about the business around growing the grapes and making the wine, how that's done, how small wine growers can be competitive in an interesting area to grow grapes that at least I don't normally think about, you know, agriculture in in Texas. And maybe you don't, I don't know, but that's what we're talking about today. If you enjoy the show, I ask that you take a quick second, go to your favorite podcatcher, look up the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, hit the subscribe button so that you can get all the new episodes delivered straight to your device and you can keep up with all of this passive wealth generation that we're talking about on the show. If you do enjoy the show and you're an Apple user, please also take a second, go to the Apple Podcasts app, give us a rating and review, five stars if you don't mind, give us a comment, let us know. That helps other people learn about the show. I see all your comments. I read all of them and I appreciate it so, so much. If we're helping you at all, if you learn anything, the best way to pay back, if you don't mind, doesn't cost you anything, just a little bit of your time, give us a review on Apple Podcasts. Very much appreciated. For those of you who are new to the show, I'm your host, Taylor Lode. I'm a real estate investor, real estate syndicator. I buy real estate with passive investors and split the return. I love learning new things and I learned a lot of new things today and I'm sure you will as well. Without any further ado, here we go with Mason Moreland. Mason, thank you for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me, Taylor. It's been great uh, talking with you so far, and we're going to learn some great things about winery investing today. Before we dive into it, can you tell our listeners a bit about uh, what you do, your business, and you know, just get right into it. Learn about yeah. You. So the the super the super short version. Uh, first off, thanks thanks for having me. Glad glad to be here and. Uh, Enjoyed the conversation so far, uh, yeah. so so thank you. Yeah, my my background myself, I'm an environmental uh, scientist. You know, I, I've primarily been in endangered species, wetlands permitting and mitigation, things like that, oil and gas. Currently, I work for SWCA Environmental Consultants, um, so I'm doing mostly wetland permitting, things like that, phase one environmental assessments. Uh, so definitely still a full time professional, and try to do things as passively as I can, so it fits pretty well in. Your your model of, of things right now. What we we've, we've been working on uh, our, our background for my family, which is me and my brother, and my dad, for our company that that we operate, is mostly in residential real estate. So we started about the time I got out of school 
and said, you know, hey, we need to have some kind of uh, fallback plan, right? Because we'd all been through 2001, we'd all been through 2008 and seen kind of, you know, what happens when you don't have a backup income plan. You don't have some kind of additional passive income or at least a side hustle, something going on, right? So, uh, you know, my dad had read Rich Dad, Poor Dad and all that other stuff. Uh, <laughs> said, hey, we need to go buy some houses. We need to rent them out. So, Next thing you know, a couple of years later, we're up to like 15 doors. That's where we're at now, about 15 doors. And um, we start to realize this isn't scalable, right? If, if you want to stay passive and if you want to truly have um, that financial uh, liberation to, to be able to uh, be okay if you lose your job in a downturn like that or something happens, um, it's not a great model. You can do it and it takes a lot of systems. Um, but, you know, we felt like we needed to diversify. So we looked at other opportunities. Thought we were going to get into multifamily. So we went down that path. We got as far as you can possibly get without acquiring a multifamily property, like money on the line, contract, ready to go, did our physical due diligence and said, no, this, this property is not for us. Let's go back to the drawing board. It's not, the juice isn't worth the squeeze, right? So it's kind of down after that. You know, it's hard when you're thinking like, oh, I just found this new niche and I'm going to get into it. It's going to be awesome. And, and it doesn't work out. So it, this is about the same time I had my first, my first daughter, I have three now. And um, anyone that has kids knows, especially with the first one, you spend a lot of time kind of wake, you know, sleepless, trying to feed the baby and, and stay awake and just watching TV to not fall asleep while, you know, taking care of the baby. And I'd watched, I think it was, you know, the movie wasn't that great. I think it was like, it was a good year or something like that. But it was basically this, this high power professional guy from, from England goes to a vineyard in France that he has some claim to, yada, yada. He, you know, it's about living on the estate and the, the kind of the lifestyle of the vineyard. It's like, well, heck, I could do that. We have vineyards out here in West Texas. They're not quite as pretty. And as you can see behind me, they're pretty darn flat. Not a whole lot of trees or mountains or anything. But, you know, I had friends that were into it and figured I'd look into it. And I had underwritten a whole bunch of deals, a whole bunch of businesses, multifamily, single family, coin-operated laundry, you name it. I think I can underrate that. Let me just get the numbers. And I did. And the first thing I said back to my friend was, you're insane. No one would ever do this. This is a terrible business model. <laughs> you're you're going to lose your butt on this. And you know, mostly because it requires so much labor. Like, Imagine you plant this vine in the ground or the, all these vines, um, and then you wait five years with all the labor that's involved to to train the vines, to, to prune them, uh, just to maintain them, to water them, everything, repair things. And it's not even until year five that you even see any decent production. And then the labor continues forever, you know, ad infinitum. I was like, you know, you, you could make a lot of money if you got it right on this and market conditions stayed the same as they were here. Uh, we're pretty small uh, compared to, say, California or Washington or Oregon. Uh, even New York, we're, we're pretty small. We only have about 5,000 bearing acres in the state. So our, our prices are pretty high right now, right, for, for fruit. But even if they stayed high, you know, it, it was kind of sketchy. So I, I tabled it for a while. Well, kept coming back to it, trying to figure out, okay, how should this work? How do other people make this work? California's got to make this work, right? They're, this is a billion-dollar industry. It's huge. Well, the way other people do it is that are making money is they cut out that expensive part. They cut out that labor, right? So they're putting in systems just like we would do in in anything real estate, right? You, you have property managers, you have, you know, if you have Airbnb, you have automated locks, uh, you have AirDNA, you have uh, automatic pricing tools, things like that. Well, what they do in California is they mechanize everything. So uh, for example, you know, we may have one person per 10 acres out here to run a traditional 
VSP vertical shoot positioning trellised vineyard just depends on exactly what you need, but it's not, it's a lot of people. We can now run with the system we're using that we've basically copied and pasted from California uh, in the equipment set in the trellising style. We can run 320 acres with one to two guys. That's it. So, I mean, yeah, huge difference. Your overhead's much lower. You don't have nearly the, the people problems, you know, just frankly speaking, you know, the more people that are involved, the more hands touching it, the more opportunities for, for things to go wrong. You still have those initial three years, uh, two, two or three years where you're training the vines and that takes a lot of hand labor. But, you know, the, the other 25 years, you're going through and doing almost everything by machine. So it makes a huge difference. And that's, that's where the, the light bulb clicked on, right? So we can, we can go find systems that other people are doing successfully apply them here, tweak them for our climate, for our economic situation, for our market, and, and make it work and really disrupt the market because nobody's nobody else is really doing it here. Uh, we're the only, only vineyard that's set up to do this here in the state of Texas currently. Interesting. That's pretty cool. So with this you know model of building a, a mechanized vineyard, where does the, I guess, how does the money all play in? Is it a you know, you, you build it and then you plan on some, you know, fantastic exit in 10 years based on, you know, NOI, kind of the typical, you know, commercial real estate value add equation, or is it a cash flow play or, you know, what's, what's the, when you get down to the numbers, how does it produce a return for you and, you know, any passive investors in these deals? Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. Cause it's the, the exit strategies are, are, some of them are similar, but you know your main exit strategies are different, right? There's not a whole lot of people or syndicates out there or conglomerates that are out there just buying up, you know, 500,000 acres of vineyard at a time, especially outside of California. You know, inside of California, sure, different story. But you have a couple plays, right? The main play is cash flow. Now, these things are depreciated over a similar lifespan to a uh, piece of commercial real estate. You know, it's like 25 years expected lifespan on the vines. Uh, you can continually put capital improvements into that by replanting. And, and that's part of our model is that we have a specific holdback, about 20%. All of our profits, we hold back for those capital improvements so that we can kick that can even farther down the road. So we're continually replanting and having that, that held back capital in case of anything, uh, natural disasters, right? It's a risk that you have with any, any kind of physical asset. It's a little different when you have plants in the ground, right? And they take five years to really come to full production. But uh, yeah, you have insurance and you have that holdback. But uh, your first first exit strategy, so to speak, is, is cash flow. Your second one is refinance because uh, you know obviously a vineyard that hasn't produced yet is worth a whole lot less from a commercial uh, perspective than a vineyard that's producing you know thousands of tons of fruit at you know a thousand a thousand dollars a ton consistently. That that is suddenly worth a whole lot more. So you can actually go refinance that, pull some of that capital out, snowball it, do another block, go do something else with it, distribute it, et cetera. And then there's also the uh, less likely play, but more long-term play where you uh, build an asset that's attracted to somebody like a Gallo or Constellation, one of these really large companies out in, in the West Coast uh, that are always looking to move out to other states and other areas. Uh, but you know, really, they're, they're not attracted to an asset until it's up in that like 1,000 to 5,000 acre range. And, and like I said, Texas as a whole right now has about 5,000 acres uh, that are bearing fruit. So so as a whole, we're just about there as, as if we were one asset. But we, we aim to change that in the next 10 years. 
Interesting. Okay. So I, I enjoy wine. I'm certainly not an expert in any sense on wine, but I, I know a little bit about growing plants, right? And a little bit about Texas. And I don't normally associate any part of Texas with a you know, good place to grow grapes. How are you accomplishing that? Is it like a drip irrigation type of thing or you do it or, or something else? I mean, you got to feed and water these, these vines somehow. So what's the, how's that plan work? That's, that's a really good point because most people don't associate it all, at all with Texas. And, you know, even within Texas, there's an area, you know, around Austin is the hill country. And that's what everybody associates with, with the Texas wine country. And the dirty little secret that, that the casual public doesn't usually know about Texas wine is that it's all drank in the hill country. It's all bought in the hill country. A lot of it's made in the hill country. Almost all of it is grown in the Texas high plains. So you're talking cotton country. It is boring and flat, just like this. Uh, you can, uh, you know, unless you're standing on a tuna can, and then you can see Dallas from, you know, all the way. In West <laughs> but it, it really comes down to a few things. Like you said, it's, it's water, it's soil, uh, and climate. Uh, so we have uh, great groundwater. Uh, you know, we're a very traditional ag region. Like I said, it's cotton country. We produce a whole bunch of cotton, wheat, uh, soy, things like that. So we've got that kind of under control. We get about 18 inches of rain, depending on exactly which part of the AVA, uh, American Viticultural Area, you're in. Uh, so it's it's right there in the range that you need for, for vines. And the aquifer allows us to water in those times that we do have drought and we do need uh, an extra kick of water, you know, in advance of the hot weather. So that, that's pretty much under control on the water side. We, we do use drip. We use a combination of some of them use above ground drip. Some of them use below ground drip. Just kind of experimenting, honestly, to see what, what works best uh, with, with how long the time frame is on these. We have, you know, 10 years to really play with things uh, and, and try to dial them in over time. Uh, and then on the climate, that's where things get a little squirrely. One of the big things that makes California and the West Coast the major wine producers is disease pressure. You know, if if you do a little bit of do a little bit of research on the history of wine grape growing in the world, Texas actually saved wine grapes the whole world, really, and in particular the European wine grapes. What happened was after folks had come to the U.S. and brought back soil and plants and grapevines that were native here, they also brought back pests uh, and disease that were very particular to here, and it almost wiped out anything that was vitis vinifera, so the actual like European, West Asian grapevine, it just decimated it. And what happened was he, uh, a guy named Munson, he was uh, out of North Texas, north of Dallas, he um, cultivated several native grapevines to Texas and found that if you grafted European vine stock onto the top of the rootstock of native vines, suddenly they were resistant to all these diseases and you could really dial in for different kinds of soils, different kinds of climate, different disease pressures based on that. Well, where that comes back around on the climate side is that we're actually able to knock out a whole bunch of that disease pressure, like phylloxera is a major disease pressure that we have all across, especially the Southern US, uh, even up into Virginia uh, where you're at. And in our part of Texas in the high plains, it gets so cold and this is this is theory, right? We think this is why it, why it is. It gets so cold in the wintertime that we don't actually have the vectors, the, the insect vectors, able to survive. So there's virtually no phylloxera here. So we don't get the same kind of death loss that you would get in, the, in, in say, the hill country of Texas or East Texas. 
uh, where it's warm and humid and you have these mild winters. And we're able to grow uh, real common, you know, Vitis vinifera European grapevine varieties here because of that. Now, the trade-off there is, right, they're also sensitive to cold. So we got to find out, you know, how do we make these things live through 15-degree winters sometimes? Uh, and, and that takes some doing. Uh, we have we have hail, we have sleet, we have snow. Um, snow is actually good for it, it's insulating. But, you know, when you have just an open vine sitting there with 30-mile-an-hour sustained 20-degree winds, you know, it can do some damage, especially if you throw some sleet and some hail in there. It's, it's not good for them. Uh, so we have to have some mitigating factors where we, uh, you know, we really knock a lot of fruit off the vines early to make sure that we get those large, sturdy root systems, large, sturdy vines before we start cropping. Uh, part of our system is that we we crop, you know, uh, double, triple, even quadruple the amount of tonnage uh, other people do and still attain very similar quality uh, by just getting a bigger canopy. Uh, our, our warm climate during the summer lets us ripen just about as much fruit as we want, thankfully. We've got, this is about as cloudy as it gets in this picture uh, for our area. That's like, that's a very cloudy day. Unless it's just pouring rain, there's no clouds. But yeah, you, we're able to mitigate those factors. And the climate's super similar to like uh, Lodi, Fresno, Central Valley, California, where they're primarily doing this mechanized grape growing. The only difference being is our precipitation timing is flip-flopped. We get it in the summer instead of the winter. And our winters are a lot harsher. So we're just, we just have to change a few things about uh, our fertilization schedules uh, and making sure we really take care of our vines when they're limited young. Cool. That's, that's pretty neat. So for, you know, the passive, inve- passive investors out there who, you know, their interest is pri- in, in being involved in real estate investments, primarily they want to park their money and, you know, have it work for them rather than, you know, them working for, sure. for their money. What do opportunities in this industry usually look like either, you know, whether you offer anything for passive investors or, You've observed, you know, others out there offering passive investments. What does that usually entail or or look like? Yeah, that's a that's a really good point. The you know, I'm not going to be out there driving a tractor unless it's it's for fun. <laughs> you know, like, uh, I think I've I, my my mother forced me to get in one and was like, "Take a picture. I need a picture of you and a John Deere." <laughs> okay, fine, but I, you know, I'm not I'm not out there driving a tractor. Obviously, I still work full time and uh, really enjoy where I'm working, and I want to keep doing that. So you really have to build your team and build your systems, no matter what you're doing, and, and that's what we've really worked hard on doing. Uh, so we went out and found the team. That's not so passive, right? You got to go find a team, build your system. So we've got one of the best vineyard managers in the state, the only guy uh, that's really deeply involved in mechanized viticulture in the state. Uh, he's He's our vineyard manager, partnered up with another family that has a lot of farming history, so they actually understand it. They already had about 60 acres of vineyard to begin with. Uh, so they they were familiar with the industry and how things went. So that's been immensely helpful. We can kind of spread the load out, right? Uh, and, and we can focus on the things that we're good at. Like we from, from the real estate world, we can go get financing. We know how that's done. We're really good at that. We know what's a good deal, what's not. We know how to set up, basically set up the deal and run the business, right? The business side of it. But, but for really, truly passive investors, I think where something like this gets really attractive is... What I'm working on now is actually bringing syndication in. One of the reasons we thought that Texas was a particularly good market for us to get into grapes, not to get into the, I guess, the winemaking side yet, but just on the on the fruit growing side, is because relative to other areas anyways, it's, it's fairly unsophisticated on the side of technology and deal structure it's usually bootstrapped which is is awesome and you know we wouldn't know the things we know now without all these amazing growers that we have right now with the the existing five thousand acres 
but it's typically a bootstrap business. People are in there doing it themselves or they hire a vineyard manager to do it. Like, you know, a second career kind of a deal. And what we want to do and what we're trying to work on now is expanding that vineyard acreage through syndication, right? So we have truly passive investors that say, hey, I want exposure to, you know, something that's different than multifamily, that's different than industrial, that's different than, you know, mini storage, uh, things like that, you know, and, and truly be passive. Um, so what we're working on now is to expand to the level that we can meet the, the fruit demand in the state of Texas and then eventually be an exporter. Because right now, no, no fruit, no product hardly leaves the state of Texas. Just for context, we produce, uh, got some notes over here. We produce about 12,000 acres worth uh, of grapes for wine just in the state of Texas. And it's all consumed here. And we only have about 5,000 acres. So if you consider that, you know, we're, we're doing a higher yield operation, we need at least another thousand acres before we're even broaching, we can provide the, the in-state demand. And I'm sure even out of state, you know, you're probably familiar with how rapidly affectionate Texans are of things being 100% Texan. Sure. That's a major deal. People have been trying to push through um, legislation, making it so you can't label a wine as a Texas wine, unless it's 100%. Right now, I, I want to say it's like 75%. And really, uh, all the remainder of the wine and fruit and juice is trucked in from California. And it's a massive waste of fuel. It's a massive waste of time. You know, the, the fruit is cheap, but once you stick it in a truck and pour all that diesel into that truck and then truck it all the way over here, we can compete very well against that, especially when our land price are you know a third uh, of what they're looking at out there but yeah syndication i think is the is the next wave of getting people passively involved in this you know there are private equity groups that invest in things like this in california oregon washington but with with the syndications we're working on now uh, we're gonna we're gonna be developing in blocks of about a half section which is a half square mile 320 acres and, and that's like i said about enough to keep one to two guys busy full time uh, managing it you know one set of equipment busy all the time so uh, they're getting maximal utilization. Yeah, that's really how I think a passive investor would get involved in something like this. Cool. Dig it. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. All right, Mason, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? I'm ready. Shoot. All right, great. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? Probably time with my family, honestly. And this is, I, I'm not going to go with the, 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 the gushy emotional side of it. it. Just, this is just from a tactical passive investor perspective. Okay. My family <laughs> is phenomenal. My dad is one of the smartest guys I've ever met in my entire life. And I greatly, I am so happy that I've spent uh, a significant amount of time gleaning information from him, particularly him, but also my brother, my mom. My brother is extremely intelligent as well. He's a, a commercial real estate agent up in, in Lubbock, Texas. And he, uh, if I don't have a grasp on it, he probably has already researched it or done it before or uh, analyzed it about 50 times. And so that's super helpful. But yeah, particularly like my dad, he's a, he's a CPA, uh, but he's, he's worked on, uh, you know, the, the big three tax firms or big three now or five i don't know consolidation but it's done uh you know in the consulting merger and acquisition ipo kind of world so he really gets like that big picture you know um, how, how do we get from way down here to way up here and what are those people way up there how do effective people at that level operate uh, so that's been probably the best investment not including the you know just it's good <laughs> nice so we had the best investment now we go to the worst investment what is the worst investment you ever made 
this one was really hard for me, Taylor. Not going to lie. I actually thought about this one for a while. And I, I thought maybe I came up with a clever answer. I don't know if it is, but I don't have one. I do not have a worse investment. And the reason for that is that for every investment I've made, whether it's time or money, I have learned so much from it that once you get away from the sting of it being maybe financially poor, um, you realize that the lessons you learn, if you're able to back up and actually learn them and write them down and think about them, they're what's going to get you through to the next deal. And they're going to make that next deal much better. You know, if, if you were going to say the worst financial deal, it would be probably the first house I ever bought. Um, <laughs> but I learned so much from just that one experience of how not to be a landlord uh, that, you know, it, it was earth, just earth shattering for me. You know, every, every house after that, that we did was, was completely different. So uh, I learned a lot up front. Nice. My favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? So uh, this one is applicable to both the active and the passive investor. I think, I, I think the biggest lesson that I've learned is that greatness is just beyond that next step, right? You just need to get beyond that thing that's in your way. You just have to take that next step. You need to take action. And, and that's kind of a broad one, but you have to take adversity and be able to power through it. You know, just because it seems like a brick wall doesn't mean it is. It might just be somebody holding up a sheet, <laughs> you know, and the real prize <laughs> is right behind that. And, you know, I, I think a lot of people get started, whether it's passive or active, and, and they either get scared or they, they hit adversity and say, whoa, maybe this isn't for me. Uh, I'm going to back up. And, you know, I've done it uh, a lot of times. And, and what I've found now is that uh, when I really get traction and when I really start when I really started to grow is when I've said, no, I'm going to figure this out and just uh, dive in at a hundred miles an hour, and, you know, just, just tackle it uh, head on. Nice. I dig it. Well, Mason, thank you for joining us today. It's a really cool uh, business strategy and wealth generation strategy, building a mechanized winery. Awesome. Hope I can uh, get some of your wine someday. If folks want to reach out, if they want to get in touch with you, where can they find you? Yeah, you can you can find me on LinkedIn. I'm super active on there for, for SWCA, for uh, our wine and grape growing businesses as well. You can also find me on firmforge.com. That's our custom crush winery. I think cotton gin for wine grapes <laughs> basically is the best explanation I have for it. And absolutely, yeah, I would, I would love to get you some wine uh, from, from the vineyard. And, you know, right now we're, we're mostly growers, but I'll find out where, uh, where the, the next uh, batches are being made. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That's very much appreciated and it helps other people learn about the show. If you know anyone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into the tribe. Thank you for tuning in once again. I hope you have a great rest of your day and a great week. And we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye. Smash the like, subscribe. Like I don't know and subscribe. which direction it is. <laughs> <laughs>